Hello and welcome to Anam Radio. There are not nearly enough concertos for double bass, and I'm sure our guest today will agree with me. But one of the most attractive concertos for double bass is also one of the earliest known, and that's the concerto in E-flat by Jan Baptiste Van Hull, the bohemian-born composer who ended up in Vienna, a prolific composer of symphonies, concertos, quartets, but known mainly now for this double bass concerto. And we hear it performed by Benjamin Sophia. Hello, Benjamin. Hello, Phil. Thank you for having me here. You're very welcome. I want to know something about the double bass because I know that it's evolved considerably from Van Hull's time, which was mid-18th century. We're talking about the period of Haydn and early Mozart. How much has the instrument changed since then? The instrument has changed a fair bit. The period in which Van Hull was writing and the instrument that he was writing for was a period in which there were many different models of what a double bass could be. Every country, every region had a slightly different tuning system, maybe a different number of strings. Were there frets? No frets. The degree of standardization that there was was a lot lower than there is now. In fact, the double bass was just almost on the verge of standardization that was going to come through with Dragonetti. So he was a famous double bass player who played around Beethoven's time. And Dragonetti was the first who played with the standard four strings tuned in fourths. Actually, I believe that there were three strings originally tuned in fourths, and then eventually the fourth string was, was added on. And that model eventually became the standardized model for bass that we know today. But back in Van Hal's time, the answer to that was very different. And there were lots of different models of basses and different types of bass tunings that existed all over Europe. So the particular type that Van Hal was writing for was called Viennese tuning. And that was the very strange, now, by modern day, tuning of F, A, D, F sharp, A. So you've got basically a minor ninth within the own tuning system, but obviously they're not being played together very, very often. And it also means that there are things that Van Hal asks of you in that concerto that were quite easy on the bass that was being written for. But nowadays, to a modern player, it's actually very hard. So anyone who's ever lived with me, will know that the passage of da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da is just an absolute torturous passage that they will hear me play and fumble constantly. But if I was on a Viennese tuning bass, then I would barely spend any time on that at all because they would all be harmonics that would just be effortlessly played right next to each other, just crossing the strings. But if people are wondering why bass tunings have been so regularly changed and not just the standardized fifths that you'd expect in other string instruments. The main reason is because of the size. When you're dealing with a bass that is incredibly big and the distances between the semitones are so huge, having the same distances of fifths like you would for a violin or cello is a lot less practical. It involves a lot more shifts where you basically have to shift the hand an extreme amount in order to get all the semitones that can be reached on a particular string. So while there are some bass players who have tried and some you know, very good virtuoso players, I think Joel Quarantin is one of the most famous, who tunes his strings as fifths. For mere mortals such as ourselves, it's not always the best option. So that's why we've definitely got the more standardized version of tuning in fourths which is a bit of a compromise between the Viennese tuning in which, you know, all the strings are basically overlapping with how close they are in pitch, and then the fifths, which makes them very extreme and very hard to reach across. So the fourth is the standard compromise that the bass world has come to. 
And it also gives it a nice camaraderie with guitar and bass guitar, which was actually how I got into the instrument in the first place, was I knew that as a classical guitar player, I'd already understand how the strings work and wouldn't get too confused by it. Tell us a bit about your instrument. I'm intrigued, by the way, to know that there were these different systems for tuning strings and what you've described just seems so impractical to us now, but of course it worked then. But tell us about the instrument you play on now. How old is it? Does it have any distinctive features? Yeah, my bass is not a particularly old bass. It was made by Romeo Gabute in the Philippines, and that was in the mid 20th century towards late 20th century. It was owned by Brett Berthold in the Opera and Ballet Orchestra for a little while, and then I bought it in 2014, which was just as I was finishing high school. And that was a fantastic bass to have that really like elevated the level of sound that you're able to produce. And of course, that's very motivating, especially as a young player, when you realize I can actually make a really good sound on this. So maybe I should practice more, maybe I should try harder. And so that's obviously very helpful. When it comes to distinctive features, I would say the best feature is this little spot that's on the right corner of the back. There's this big spot, which makes me call it the leopard occasionally. But it's also got a fantastic extension as well that comes all the way around. And it's really beautiful the way that this particular extension, the string sort of coils around the top and then through the back and comes in, which means that unlike lots of extensions, you're able to have it tuned in the regular way that you would tune a non-extension bass without having to switch the pegs around. Well, that's very interesting. So it's quite versatile, actually. Yeah. At one point, when I first got the extension, it basically would come off whenever I detuned the string. The extension would come off and was only put in place by the tension that I would use when I put the string on. Since then, it's been worked on a couple of times and now it's basically glued on. So it's going to stay even if I de-string the bass. Oh, that's very interesting, Ben. Now, I notice in your performance of this concerto, you're sitting, but of course you can stand. Why do you choose to sit or stand? What determines that? Your laziness, really. It's more comfortable to sit, as I'm sure probably surprises very few people. But in some ways, standing can often get you extra power. And that level of power, particularly of people who struggle to reach up to the top levels of the strings, into the higher registers, standing can be useful for that too. And also at times, standing can be easier to communicate with people over as well, which is why jazz players tend to stand up a lot. And also perhaps easier engagement with the audience as well, if you're sort of a bit further towards the stage. So there are some reasons towards standing. For me, if I'm going to be playing a concerto for 20 or 25 minutes, I'm happy to sit. Well, fair enough. I'm not going to object. One interesting thing about this concerto is that each of the three movements has a cadenza, and that is quite unusual actually for every movement of a classical concerto to have a cadenza. Are any of these by Van Hull himself, or have you created some of them? To my knowledge, Van Hull didn't write any cadenzas himself, which would have been quite common for the time in classical period concerti. Composers rarely wrote the cadenzas themselves. They were an opportunity for the soloist to improvise. Those cadenzas are actually quite new. They were written in, I believe, the 50s or 60s by a composer called Heinz Karl Gruber. And he was writing them for the Doppelbrace virtuoso Ludwig Streicher, who was the principal double bass of Vienna Philharmonic for a couple of decades, I believe. And so Stryker's performance style is quite romantic. It's quite over the top, one might say, in the modern day. I think there are parts of it when you listen to the way he plays the concerto that feel very unclassical. But also the cadenzas are perhaps the most 
engaging and exciting cadenzas that you'll ever hear for this piece, which I think is why I wanted to play these particular ones. They're very well written as well. You can tell that Heinz Gruber was a very good composer and he was able to use that skill in order to write these cadenzas that while they do still use the themes of Van Hull and they are still written in a classical style, they also have this emotional and schizophrenic and very exciting attitude towards them that's a lot of fun to experiment with. Well, you've just explained everything because in listening to your performance, I thought, gee, I really like these cadenzas. And the name Gruber is known to me. He was a very modernistic composer. So the fact that he was able to blend in so well with Van Hull's style, but also create something so exciting is really impressive. And I think they're a highlight actually of the performance. Let's talk now about the conditions of the performance. This was recorded late last year. Tell us what was going on. Well, 2020 was a hard year for everyone at Anam. It was my first year at Anam, so I had about three weeks, a total of three weeks, getting to spend time at the South Melbourne Town Hall. Then everything shuts down. We hope it's only going to be for a month or so. It goes for a few more months. I end up heading back to Sydney in July to visit my parents for a few weeks, and that's when the second wave really started to get off. So then I ended up essentially locked out of Melbourne for another six months. And so I was hanging out back in Sydney where I had just left and just ready to sort of spread my wings. And so then the recitals had to eventually be recorded all over the country, wherever people were. So that included a whole bunch of us that were in Sydney recording at the Music Aviva studios. So Anam was actually very flexible in managing to get us all venues and allow for us to engage our own associate artists as well in our local cities. And unfortunately, because of the Music Aviva studio requirements at that particular time, we were only allowed to have two people in the audience. So in the end, that was, yeah, my parents were the audience members. And I got a friend of mine as well to be my page turner. So I managed to just get that number up to three. But it is a very different sort of condition than a live performance. Well, Ben, I think it's high time this performance was shared with a wider audience than two or three people. So I'm glad we can do that for you now. And thanks again. It's a beautiful performance. And I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Anam Radio. Thanks to our guest, Benjamin Sophia, our coordinator, Sabrina Alde, and our producer, Nathan Elul. I'm Phil Lambert, and I hope you can join us next time. Bye for now.